1: At LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply.
0: Hello and welcome to the latest Love Tennis podcast. We are live here on Locker Room. Or as those of you who listen regularly know, I am currently live here and I'm waiting for James and Calvin to arrive. Here's James. Here he comes. Hello, James.
2: I made it you Somehow. made it
0: yeah you, that I was know. the smoothest one yet by the way i literally made i spoke it. for 14 seconds said i was waiting for you to arrive and you popped up i think that's superb i'm it's really happy with
2: that the professional <laughs>
0: operations yeah.
2: we're getting uh, slicker by the week <laughs> george speaking of professional operations i'm really intrigued to hear about your uh, your your the beginning of your comeback yes. uh, from injury T- tell me more about your
0: injury so I know the fans have been pretty worried about this. <laughs> <laughs> they want to get a lot of updates. They've been waiting for my classic, like Instagram picture of me, like working hard for the comeback hashtag twenty twenty one, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I had my first physio session on Friday, which was interesting. Mm. Um, on your. So, it's on my. I've got a lat injury. Oh, here's here's Calvin. Hello, Calvin. Hello. Hello. Oh, you've got terrible car sound.
3: Um, right. Well, I'll will come out and I'll be won't have that in about sixty seconds.
2: Great. <laughs> <laughs> that,
0: that's just so long it. enough
2: for George to tell us about his physio
0: appointment. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I I went in, did the classic diagnosis. You know, telling him all my problems. So for those of you who can't remember and who aren't in, heavily invested in this, <laughs> um, <laughs> I was getting like shooting pains up my tricep when I was serving, and yeah. I had. I took some. I'm not sure I actually sent you these pictures, but last week I took some. I took some very.
2: No, please don't. I can see you moving.
0: Please don't. (laughs) I took some very attractive pictures of me topless with some bruising on my tricep, but also kind of round here. It started just bruising up after I played tennis. Um, So I have I've torn my lat, um, which yeah yeah it's actually not so bad um he reckons i'll be back by like he's at the tail end of january so kind of like someone we're i may make the australian open but the but the really interesting thing is and I, I am reluctant to go on about this for too long but i found this fascinating so he was talking about like he showed me a load of like experiments about how my seating posture at work had been causing this damage um yeah. so like loads of my muscles aren't engaged so he was doing this experiment you should try this at home if you've not done this before or, or if there are two of you but like i get really tight hamstrings so i lift them up and what he did was he showed me i showed him like right where's it where's it stop lifting up and then he put his hand on my stomach and pushed down and asked me to do the same thing again and i could bring my hamstring right up to the top it's a really good little trick. I, I did it wow. to my brother a few days later. Sorry, is that,
2: is that from a seated position or from a lying on your back? Uh, lying down, lying on your
0: back. Right. So you push down on someone's stomach and they'll be able to put their hamstrings up. And what's been happening, and this is quite cool. And uh, I know you're your desperate way. to try this out. Yeah. So Absolutely. what's been happening is like, I've contracted my diaphragm from sitting over so much. So I've got so used Uh, to breathing in the top half of my body. And this is like a really common problem for writers and just anyone else who generally sits down, um, that I'm not engaging these muscles that because the air is not coming in, I'm not engaging like my glute muscles properly. And it's like a cheat muscle where you push into someone's stomach, that it automatically engages these muscles. And because your hamstrings aren't actually necessarily what's tight, but they're like, They get painful because that's not the worst bit. So he did like a good, good like talk about how like okay, so if your ankle hurts, you can still kind of like walk slowly and like limp on and get there. But if your hips stop working, you actually can't get anywhere. So saying to take the pressure off, that's why your body automatically like straighten, feel strain those other. So it was really
2: interesting. So we're now going to fix my breathing as well as my lap
0: um well, so I'll, I'll keep you I mean, posted what, with that in the new all, year
2: what he's also very cleverly done there is created more work for himself yeah um,
0: but it's and that is true but equally we are hoping to have it done in like three or four sessions so it's not too oh, bad sure. that's kind of yeah. that's what i'm kind of expecting anyway and i'll um, never be back there ever again well, well i definitely yes. will be back then but i i, I saw <laughs> enough from him to to know that
2: at least with these magicy gimmicky things, that uh, I've got a lot of work to do. So okay, all, well, you're not the, you're not the, you're not the only person uh, with a lot of work to do. Uh, Roger Federer has been talking this week, and frankly, I think a few more listeners might be interested uh, in exactly what he's been up to. Um, he of just course had couple. knee surgery, just a few. Uh, he of course had knee surgery earlier this year, and I think we were all fairly confident that. Frankly, the lockdown had come at rather a good time for him because it meant that he didn't miss any tennis. Um, But getting back in time for, say, January 2021 would not be a problem. Uh, I think we can probably, without exaggerating, say that that now does look like a problem. Um, He was talking this week. I believe he was honoured. as, And I think I don't know how much competition he had for Switzerland's best athlete since 1950. Um, I mean, Herman Meyer, wasn't he Swiss or was he Austrian? I might have done something terrible there. He's a, he's a downhill skier, for those of you who don't know. He's very good. Ramon um, Vega, former uh, Spurs defender. Ah, Calvin, you're not on mute on Zoom, so you're a lovely echo. Uh, Ramon Vega, a great shout, yeah. Um, and, and Stan Wawrinka, quite frankly. I can't think of any other decent Swiss athletes.
0: Wawrinka the, the definitely wasn't in the top three. I saw the names wow. earlier. He That's definitely wasn't in the top three.
2: I mean, since 1950, that is a long time. A long anyway, time. The, the, the salient point is that he was talking about his injury, um, and thanks to George's fine reporting on Metro.co.uk, okay. I can tell you exactly what he said. He said, I would have hoped that I would be 100% in October, but I'm not. still not today. It'll be tight for the Australian Open. Uh, it's a race against time. I'm curious to see whether it will start on February 8th. Of course, it would help me if I had a bit more time. The second near operation was a huge damper, but there's been steady progress. Let's see how the next two months unfold. I've been doing a lot of physio and physical work lately. Now let's see how tennis is doing. I mean, that suggests to me that he hasn't really hit a ball in anger yet, which suggests that we are very much still a little bit in no man's land, George. Is that a fair reading of that situation? You,
0: you, you've you just, <clears throat> I, I promise not to go off on too much of a tangent here, but that, no, that phrase fair. you just used really made me laugh there. I with a former girlfriend I had a big argument about whether hitting a ball in anger is an actual phrase. I'm so pleased you just used that right there. <laughs> <clears throat> Honestly, I thought I was being gaslit. I was sat there like, this is definitely a phrase. And I typed it into the internet and it's like, it doesn't exist. But wow. I've heard so many people say it. Anyway, that's a pretty okay. weird thing. You're tangent, not going mad. Maybe your Opinion on something would be
2: handy at some point, George?
0: Finally. Yeah. So Federer, yeah. Um, I I think this is probably just another reminder how old Roger Federer is and what stage of his career is at, that nothing is straightforward. I mean, there was a little bit of a... People weren't sure how serious he was being, but he was kind of talking at the end of this speech, you know, if I did have to retire now and I wasn't able to come back, um, that I'd be happy enough of what had happened. I I think it's just a reminder that this is he is very finite now. This is the end. Things like this can end his career. Uh, two knee right. surgeries, second one coming just before his 39th birthday. Th- this isn't an easy
2: comeback. Um, and but also it's weird is- we're taking it for granted, in a way. 13 months, you know, that, that's from, oh, sorry, 11 months <laughs> from surgery to Australian Open. Like, this is not a knee surgery recovery timeline that we're used to in, in any form. Yeah, but really I guess he's
0: good. had two. He has had two, hasn't he? So the yeah. second one was kind of middle, and, and and that was quite similar in 2016, wasn't it? Um, he, he needed to go for a second one yeah. halfway through the year. Um, well, he sl- so, didn't he slip in the bathroom. He was giving yeah. his kids a bath. And he slipped, yeah, that. Which that's how he did the first have. bit of damage. Um,
2: yeah, I mean, talking, yeah. Uh, you know, February, February 8th, um, and Roger Federer. I know it's Roger Federer, so things are slightly different, but to have not necessarily, as far as can tell from that, hit a ball yet? I mean, at what point do you think if, as a trainer, you might say, look, mate, you haven't even really been able to get onto court yet, we're going to have to pull the plug on this? Like, does it have three weeks, four weeks?
3: Um, it's a strange one because I'm reliably told that he has hit balls. Right. Um, I, I don't know to what level, and I've, I've seen sort of those top players, when they come back from injury, and it may be that he's literally just standing in a corner and hitting balls. So, yeah. But I know he, he has hit because I, I know of people who have hit with him. I don't know them personally, but I know who he has hit with um, right. or, or know that he was looking for partners and partners flew out to hit with him. Uh, but yeah. like I said, that could be he's literally stood in a corner um, and doing that. Um, what, what was your but question, James? Sorry,
2: that, No matter how little movement involved, that's promising in itself, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I I think so. Yeah. And it could be a case of, you know, you never know on these kind of things. It could be a case of um, that. It's a bit stiff. He thought he would be moving a little bit smoother at this stage. Mm -hmm. It might it might not be be pain right away. But I think what what is what was evident from the quotes he gave is that he's not going to risk Wimbledon, the Olympics and US Open in order to get ready for the Australian Open. Which mm. might not be might not be what the Aussies wanted to hear. I also wonder, and and this is purely me speculating. I also wonder if he fancies all that time in quarantine in Australia, especially if he's not feeling bang on the money.
2: Mm, yeah, and I think he's already said that he's not not going to take his family out. George, is that right?
0: Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say that. Um, you know, he doesn't want to take his young family out to sit in a hotel for two weeks, and then you know that's a complete yeah, that pain, isn't sound-
2: it? Does sound awful. Like I know Roger's got at least one, if not two, sort of um full time nannies, but you know, that just means there's more of you in a small contained space. Um, and, and-, and I'm not sure what the like
0: Aussie rules are about how many people they're gonna allow in. I, look I know it's Federer, so they'd probably find a way to get them in if they needed to, but um <laughs> You know, yeah, there's one it,
2: it, thing I've learned about coronavirus, George, and I don't know if it applies in Australia, but in the UK, if you're rich and famous, you can do what on earth you want, mostly, <laughs> as, long as, as long as you don't get caught. Um, but anyway, that's just my personal gripe. Um, speaking speaking of, of knee injuries and various injuries, Calvin, you flagged this earlier in the week, and it was quite—I mean, quite harrowing to see. Really, some some news coming out of Argentina. Uh, Juan Martín Del Potro, kind of talking about this really being the end and sounding really quite down on his prospects of getting back on the tennis court again.
3: Yeah. Um, it didn't sound good at all, did it? Um, and he's also older than you think you, because he's not played so much. You tend to think he's kind of still sort of 26, 27, but he's 31. Um, mm. And it's a weird one because although he doesn't have, as we say in the sports world, doesn't have loads of miles in the legs. Um, yeah. He's also had just terrible luck with injuries. I, I think it's devastating with Del Potro. He, he's probably uh, my favourite player of the modern era. Um, and I, I just wonder how different the whole, the, the records that we talk about every week would be if Del Potro would have been fit for the whole time. Not not necessarily saying that he would have won... Um, like say another seven or eight slams, but he also would have been, I I think he might have taken out some of the people that did win them. Um, And he just seems to have terrible luck um, all along. And when he came back last time was a phenomenal achievement, um, making sort of the, I think he made us open final um, Olympics final as well. Wasn't it? Olympics final us open final from from pretty much being out of the game. Um, and he's just a phenomenal player. He's, he's the one player, I think, that he's the one player outside of the top, the big four, as we put it, maybe aside from Stan, who absolutely believes that he should be in the same bracket as those top top four. Um, and he can, and, and I know that none of the Murray probably is the worst matchup for him, but Federer, Nadal and Djokovic do not want to be playing him in draws. I, I know that. I know that they've, they've mentioned that in private to people. Yeah, I mean, his his last comeback was
0: obviously he, he got up to an even higher ranking than he'd ever been by reaching the yeah. US Open final, got up to world number three. And I, I was actually watching that match with Chorich um, where he fell and it, it was just the most innocuous fall. He literally just tripped over on the court, hit yeah. his knee on the court, out for another, you know, six months. Same thing happens again against Shapovalov at Queen's. I mean, the guy just cannot catch a break. And it, as, as Calvin says, I mean, you only have to look at who this guy beat to win his first Grand Slam. I mean, how many people are going through Federer and Nadal back-to-back?
3: And Roddick to at Grand the time, wasn't it? Roddick, Roddick as yeah. well in
0: there. You know, it's absolutely crazy, that sort of, that level you reach. Um, so I I think it's just incredibly sad, as as Calvin kind of said. And I think what's been so amazing about his career for me is that he's like, rebuilt so many different styles how he's come back, you know, he had his wrist he had a really good backhand when he was younger, and he had to build this kind of sliced defensive game when his wrists weren't quite working and he start, He was actually starting to get that two-hander going again before this most recent um, knee injury so I, I hope he finds a way back again because he wants to retire on his own terms, that's the, that's the phrase he's used but he's deserved a lot better out of his career because he's a great athlete and has had so much bad luck
3: Yeah, I mean, and I was just going to say as well, you kind of sort of almost got onto where I was going to say there, George, that I can't think of any of the other players who would be able to not have their drive backhand and still compete at the level that he did. I I don't think Djokovic could. If you took Djokovic's drive backhand away, um, perhaps Federer would be the closest. Murray, Murray kind of has gone that way a bit, but not to anywhere near the same success. And Nadal, mm-hmm. certainly not. I mean, you basically took what that, that just sort of pays testament to how huge Del Potro's forehand is. Yeah. <laughs> that you could almost take the backhand away from it. And it was huge. Uh, you know, you sort of forget when it when he comes back, when he came back last time, it, it is like the sound of a of a Scud missile when he hits it. Um, it. It's a phenomenal shot.
2: It's when he flattens it out and whacks it from sort of, you know, mid-shin height. It's well, just... he also hits this
3: shot that, I've never seen anyone else hit with, with such consistency where he can hit the ball. It's kind of an inside-out forehand, and he can break the sideline on it. It's almost like a, almost an angle, but a phenomenal power as yeah. well. You tend to go through the baseline on it, but it, it's, it, it's one of those that I do wonder with Del Potro as well that I, I've always believed that tennis kind of you, – you, you always reach your potential, and the flip side of the, the discussion that we're having is – is playing that way that he does dependent on the type of body that he has and putting that kind of stress through that type of body will always lead to the injuries that he has. Having said that, he's had a couple of shocking look ones like George says, tripping ups, nothing to do with his body.
2: No, no. I mean, you're right in some ways. To look at it holistically, Rafa Nadal, if he had kept his body the way it was, would not have lasted as long as he has, so he changed his body. Um, yeah. sim- similarly, Novak Djokovic, you could say, you know, he wasn't a physical specimen, so he changed what he did. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Juan Martín de Potro needs to stop smashing mirrors in his off season um, <laughs> because he's had some rotten luck. Um, just to kind of bring you up to speed on the reporting from, um, and I apologise for the pronunciation here, Sebastian Torok, um, who works for La Nacion uh, in Argentina. Um, there's kind of key notes from that. He's in a state of Juan Martín del Potro was in a state of emotional entanglement. I apologise is translating from Spanish. Um, he's basically continuing to feel a rub on the kneecap and this is I think significant that causes discomfort when playing tennis but also for simple actions in his daily life such as going up and down stairs tenacious he keeps looking for options but the stage is getting narrower every day I mean it's always important to remember at the back end of these guys careers that you know he he might want to have he might want to bend down and pick up his child one day and if he tries to come back from this injury that might not be possible and, and that's like When those decisions, I know that's something that Murray's talked about. Um, you know, he doesn't want to, he sees guys older than him who in generations before didn't look after themselves in the same way and had these joint problems, and they now like can't play mixed doubles with their kids or like you know run around on the beach with a beach ball. And, and that's like at that some point that becomes an important um switch to make. Uh, He's yeah. also,
3: I think, I think as well with Del Potro as well is that he. he he seems like a really sound bloke as well. And you just hope that there's, there's one more, you know, one more run, even if it's a sort of nine month run that he might get out of it. Um, you just hope there is, because if anybody deserves maybe another slam or another big title or another run, it, it, it's him. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and just to that
0: point, very quickly, you know, you, you can tell how popular a player is that when you put a question about them in a press conference, that every person looks genuinely upset for him and speaks very highly of him for a long time like a lot of people would be like cut it off quite quickly if they're not that bothered about talking about it It, everyone puts in the time for this guy he's very very popular on tour
2: yeah and he's been through I was just reading earlier he's been through just about every major knee doctor in the world you know from Boca Juniors to Barcelona to Miami he's Trying everything, but best of luck, Juan Martin, and we'd desperately like to see him back on court, even if it's just for one last dance, presumably at the US Open if we had to pick one, given that it seems to be the place he always um, goes so well. Uh, let's, let's move on. Um, George, you, you flagged um, a big interview with uh, Joe Conta uh, earlier in the week, talking about uh, just about everything, is what I'd like to tell.
0: Yeah, um, actually quite an interesting uh, interview, I thought um i I actually didn't do the interview i'll be honest it was a kind of group thing where we were all offered something but only two people go and do the interview and kind of share it around um so i wasn't in the room um but from speaking to the guys who were there um said it was one of the best ones they've done with contour she seemed quite relaxed very open to talk about things I, i think that came across in the quotes or at least i hope it did um i she was particularly open i thought about kind of how close the end of her career could be i'm not sure i'd really put it in my mind about her being done in two years and that was a pretty serious possibility she was putting across um she was saying that she's definitely playing this year she's definitely playing next year and then started bringing up family plans and then that obviously lent the question okay would you like to come back after motherhood and she was pretty you know i wouldn't say it straight down saying no she didn't rule anything out but it she said she didn't see herself taking that path um so i mean
1: that's
0: that's interesting i thought i mean i didn't really see her timeline being
2: two years and then done well no i suppose because she maybe was a late developer of sorts you know certainly she she wasn't someone who competed on the world stage you know until she was probably in her late 20s i think she's 29 now um so you know we, we haven 't had ten years of of Joe Conta being British number one or anything like that, so I suppose we don 't necessarily think of her as being of that age and and yeah i 'm not you know I think we 've had some remarkable women in tennis lately, you know Victoria Azarenka, Serena Williams, just named two, who have gone away, had children, and then come back. I know they 're not the first, and they won 't be the last, but they 've kind of done it very successfully it 's easy to kind of take for granted how big a commitment that is you know but apart from being a professional tennis player childbirth is all, you know the biggest thing you can put your body through to to go back to being a professional tennis player which is grueling in its own way is an incredible commitment so you know i'm not surprised that she, she's by no means saying that she wants to to do it that way round yeah and, and and to that
0: point it's not even just the physical commitment it's then okay do you want to travel on the tour all year and drag a child around with you i mean <clears throat> It, it, it's a significant lifestyle choice. It's and not expensive. Very you
1: know, you're
2: having it, another. You know, you've, you've got childcare costs, and you've, you've got another ticket on the plane, and and you know, every, everything that comes with it it complicates things tenfold. And um, I'm kind of relieved, and Calvin, I, I know you'll agree with this. I thought I'm quite relieved to see Joe Conter being a bit more open with us, the media, because she's had quite a. A prickly relationship, you know, with the press as a whole. I think maybe unwarranted,
3: Um, to a degree. I think she's also been quite awkward. I think at times there was the the, um, Jonathan Ross interview. If anyone remembers that, was one of the most awkward um, interviews ever. On a, on Jonathan Ross, um, and I don't remember that.
2: Being, I, I don't remember her being on Jonathan Ross. At all.
3: It it was <laughs> it, it it wasn't um it wasn't comfortable. If you if anyone wants to find it on YouTube, it it was. Uh, well, <laughs> it's on
2: the Love Tennis Podcast Twitter uh, uh, at Love yeah.
3: Tennis Pod. And um, and yeah, you know, maybe I think she just struggles with maybe just struggles with how to behave around the media maybe if I'm being kind there um, she hasn't found she hasn't found the sweet spot of of how to handle it
0: I, I think you know obviously I'm coming at this from the media perspective as someone who's been in the room a lot where these blow-ups have happened um, and I think what is the general feeling of frustration with Contra is that she's a really intelligent person she's got a lot to say about things people i talk to who are kind of involved in wta council meetings and stuff she she's one of the really active players who's got a lot to say about you know scheduling on courts and sexism within tennis for example There's things she's really passionate about and worked hard in private and i one great example for me was like the french open after she got shoved out to simon Mathieu. And I'm telling you, I know this. She was furious about that off court. She was lobbying so hard with the council about that, not just during the tournament, but for months afterwards. That was a big topic of discussion. Yeah. And you ask her, and someone else asks her, and someone else asks her, and it takes six questions for her to just eventually decide to say something. And as I'm not sure, you know, I'm not saying it's easy to be comfortable. But no one's panning you for saying that you know that's we all agree with you we want to give you the platform to say it we, we no one cares what George Belshaw thinks on this particularly some people do but not many comparatively but people do care what <laughs> Joanna Conter thinks she has a voice and she's someone who and she did eventually articulate it very well and she can but I just find it it's just the knowledge that she's doing so much in this sort of stuff behind the scenes and can be such a good ambassador. And obviously that came a month before what we'll all remember as one of the most infamous press conferences at Wimbledon where she (laughs) clashed with a reporter Um, but the same thing happened in that conference I'm not, look, I'm not trying to defend anyone here, it was heavy handed Um, you know, I'm also not going to criticise that style, that is a, a, a legitimate style and you know, she went for him quickly as much as he went for her I would say, but you know it, that could have been avoided i i was one of the first people to yeah. ask a question in that conference and i asked you always ask a softer way of saying it and you give a you know a nice way of doing it and if right or wrong if they don't answer immediately the heavy artillery comes in later on and that's kind of what built up and happened And i think that that's the way it's worked and whether she's been poorly advised or whether She's just uncomfortable, but it's certainly not a question of intelligence or actually having things to say. She will come out and say it. It's just frustrating. It takes so long from the media perspective, which I know is not everyone's priority, but just to try and give some context there.
2: Yeah, and I think people will say, and it, you're, you're right, it's important to kind of try and you know, be quite self-aware about this as, as members of the media. But it's also important to recognise that doing media is part of a tennis player's job. They're contractually obliged to do it. And the reason they're contractually obliged to do it is because it generates column inches. It generates chat on Twitter and Facebook and, and, you know, it, it creates more buzz around the sport. And when you're not football, basically you have to do that, you know, because your tennis, I don't think is the number one sport in any country. I'm trying to think, but i would be, i be, there might be some small ones, but I'd be amazed maybe Switzerland actually anyway. No, it's skiing. Um, the point is, it's not anywhere. And you have to try and build it. And part of a player's job is to do that and play with the media. Joe, maybe because she came a little bit late to it, didn't you know, think that, that would ever have to be her job. I'm afraid it is now. And, and maybe she's just taken time to, to come and look at it and think, I have to make this part of my job. I, I
3: think as well that there's... I'm not even sure it's just the media because yeah. I know from sort of other tennis players in private that these same problems occur. And a sort of, I don't know how to articulate it properly, a a sort of inability to understand acceptable behavior in certain circumstances sort of rears its head a bit. And I'm I'm not saying that any of it is her fault or that it's malicious, but the same instances do come up at training bases and I guess in Fed Cup and things like that.
2: She's not got, I mean, I don't think we're breaking any confidence to say she hasn't got a huge number of friends on tour. And I think no, she, no. she's been an unpopular figure, you know, as you say, by, by deliberation or not. Um, but, you know, but, but, <laughs> but
3: I, th- I think sure. even though I don't know any of the female players, and I know a few of them, I don't know any of the female players who dislike her, but yeah. at the same time um, are friends with her either. And, and even the ones that do like her, who actually like her, I wouldn't say are friends with her.
0: Yeah, and I think this is kind of the balancing act to get across here. I don't think there's much of a malicious bone in her body per se. I think she just yeah. doesn't necessarily... Yeah, I, I think it's more just the, it's the way she's wired a little bit um, that can mm. kind of cause these clashes. But, you know, I, I wouldn't say she's like unpopular in the sense people are like, God, I can't stand Eastland. that bloody Joe Conta. Um But yeah. are many people saying... Conta is one of the nicest girls on the tour and my best friend. Pro- probably not. Yeah,
2: yeah, interesting. Um, let's move on. I was just, just going to quickly say as well. I mean, just
0: just for the rest of the interview because I know that's one one section. But just a few minor little nuggets. There was some interesting stuff on the heart and the knee again. But my favourite bit was actually I don't know if you got this far down the article because it was quite far. But I did chuck it in as a cheeky <laughs> little reference at the end. Um, but there was quite good fun about the olympics and she was saying she's keen to play singles doubles and mixed doubles and she's put out a call for mixed doubles already uh for joe salisbury and recorded a video audition of her volleying that she sent over around the u.s open time um to try and get that gig and and he replied saying, "I think I'm the one who needs to audition for you." So I suspect that will be a pairing. <laughs> so one to watch out for. But I thought that was quite. I fun. mean,
2: how strong Joe obviously is one of the best doubles players in the world. Uh, Joe Salisbury, that is. Sorry. Um, how strong would a Conter Salisbury pairing thing? Do you think? Do you, George? How good would they be? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Conter's pretty decent at it. I, you'd
0: probably say Heather's our best doubles player. Is that fair to say? Her, Harriet's yeah. pretty good as well. I mean, yeah. Joe's the. Joe's the best player, obviously, but in terms of doubles know-how, Watson's got a Grand Slam title in it. So you'd probably say she's got the best pedigree, but she she can play. She If, if she wants to play the Fed Cup ties, they put her in because she's obviously the best player we've got. So she's not going to be bad at doubles. Um, mm.
3: yeah, I think the I, ruler, there tends to be a rule in doubles in that kind of situation, that unless you have a real serious doubles player, you play your best player. Right. Um, and I'm not sure that Heather would come into. She's a real serious doubles player. She's a very good doubles player, um, but not. She's not a sort of equivalent of Joe Salisbury in the women's game. So yeah. that, that's true. Yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. Um, how many pairs can you put in? Can you put two pairs into the mix?
3: I think it depends on ranking, doesn't it, George? Like how, many yeah. you've, how many you've actually got in a certain rank? So it's not yeah. unfeasible. They could have three.
0: Yeah, I mean. I, I don't want to get too bogged down with Olympic stuff, but I mean, you know, this is a conversation probably for early next year that we can waste twenty minutes on. But uh, you know, <laughs> there's there's, <laughs> there's stuff with like uh, Andy can get like a a random wild card as a former Grand Slam champion as long as he doesn't fall outside the top three hundred. There's like a special designated wild card, pretty much
2: That's just a for genuine, him. Genuine concern. <laughs> Well, I think with the
0: rankings being how they are, I would
2: probably be safe. you oh, get loads of you get loads of protected ranking experts, yeah. yeah. Um, we're um, going to come on to more world ranking chats. So let's not get
3: <laughs> yeah, there. very much
2: so. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah. Those of you who are tuning in for the Guillermo vs special, um, yeah, we're getting there. I've just got one more thing <laughs> I want to talk about, and then we're going big on Argentina. Um, if you follow Felix Auger-Aliassime on Twitter, or if you listen to this podcast a lot, you'll know that he's one of the best players in the world by the amount of time that we give him. Um, he was spotted this week out at the uh, Tony Nadal, no, sorry, the Rafa Nadal. <laughs> okay. Might as well be right, right. The Rafa Nadal <laughs> academy. He more time there. with um, with Tony Nadal on court with him. Um, I suppose you know I flagged this in the, the WhatsApp group, and it was generally kind of accepted that. If Felix was training there, Tony was going to be, you know, in the vicinity. But I thought it was vaguely significant that a bloke who's just dropped his coach is on court with, you know, a guy who has coached someone to a large number of Grand Slam titles. I'm not suggesting that Tony's ever going to come back on tour for this young Canadian lad. But, Calvin, it it must be a good sign that he's kind of broadening his perspective a little bit, at least.
3: Yeah, I think he was... uh... Like we said in the WhatsApp group, he was if Felix was there, I think it was always likely Tony would go on court with them. I don't mm-hmm. think for a minute he fancies going back, even <laughs> on tour, even on a, a very short basis. Um, but it might be one of those where he works at him as his base. Although I don't know whether it, this is just a sort of training block that he's doing there or whether he's going to use the Nadal Academy as his base. Um, I'm not sure. Pretty strange if a Canadian player did that. Mm. Um, but you know he,
2: we, we've talked about it before that he's he's had these two coaches you know through yeah. tennis Canada for a long time and yeah. you know, maybe maybe a complete change of scene and perspective yeah. is is not not the worst thing in the world for him I I hope it it works and you know obviously he's working on clay out there I mean I'm assuming they have all surfaces there but
3: yeah they've got hard courses well they've got a load of hard courts out there as well
2: yeah. uh, Interesting. George. I was just going to say that there was another good coaching
0: combo I saw this week. I don't know if you saw, but um, it just popped into my mind. I should have probably put it in the WhatsApp group, so I'm glad I remembered. Uh, but it was uh, Djokovic on-court coaching Olga Danilović this week. Anyone catch that?
2: No, I, I assume you mean
0: Novak Djokovic. I do mean Novak Djokovic. <laughs> there's, a, there's a clip of him stood watching some shots and then clearly walking over to her and offering her... Proper advice. it's not just stood at the court. He's actually quite involved in it. And you I, mean, I thought that's
2: interesting. Giving her the benefit yeah. of his experience. I hope
1: um,
3: he wasn't trying to sell us some water. Or <laughs> <like that.
1: laughs> um, uh, I
2: mean, it is the time of year when people are hawking for for tennis gigs all the time. So um, maybe maybe that's maybe he's already planning. Is this the hint that Novak Djokovic is going to retire in 2021? Um, no, it's not. Um, But there's been quite a lot. Um, I'm sure when we come back in January, this is, by the way, our last pod before Christmas because we have to take some time off. Um, Maybe when we come back, we'll have a big kind of transfer deadline day style. Who's who in the coaching world? I'll
3: Um, wear my yellow tie.
0: (laughs) Yeah. There was, there was a good there was a good one the other week uh, just on that point wasn't there. Ed Edmond's coach had already moved on to some other bloke before it'd been announced they'd split. I mean that was astonishing. It yeah. was literally on court. Was it with um what's his name? Garen
3: Garin. Um
0: yeah. <laughs> that literally was announced before the news was properly broken a bit. Yeah. Um, um yeah. Um
2: let's move on as I trailed a little bit earlier. Um we I mean I basically got distracted last week by Guillermo vs Wikipedia picture, yeah. which if you're if you're able to to bring it up is one of them. He's probably the best looking man on Wikipedia. I don't think that's unreasonable exaggeration. <laughs> I showed my housemate this. She wasn't having it. She wasn't having what? it. I
0: couldn't believe it. I was like, right. this guy's drop dead gorgeous. But
2: wow, yeah, having yeah. none he's of it. Stone dead. <laughs> um, and we 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 kind of thought, well, let's let's have a bit of a Guillermo vs kind of appreciation. And uh, there is a documentary on Netflix called uh, Guillermo vs. Settling the score, um, which we've all watched, and if you haven't watched it, maybe pause it, go away and watch it, and then come back. <laughs> to it, we're going to spoil it. We're going to talk about it quite a lot. Um, but yeah, about, basically, to kind of outline this documentary, Guillermo Vies was never world number one, uh, despite the fact that he won four Grand Slam titles, that he won the tour finals uh, in their form in the nineteen seventy four as well. Um, that he was probably the best clay court player, or well, certainly in the top two um, of his era, and one of the greatest of all time. I think he still has the record for the most matches won on clay, um, but he was never world number one by the ranking system. And this film um, kind of tracks the journey. I mean, it's as much a film about uh, the Argentinian journalist Eduardo Pupo um, and his friendship with VS that kind of boy, it only began, came into existence because Pupo started researching the fact that VS had never been uh, world number one. Um, Eduardo Pupo, by the way, looks just like Donald Sutherland in the Hunger Games. Like as soon as I saw him, I was like, that is, this is so much, but he, he very much is the good guy um, rather than the bad guy. Um, I guess I would start by asking, I mean, it, it's crazy that, you know, we, the ATP ranking system now, I think, is pretty simple to understand. You know, the... the the best tournaments are worth 1,000 points. The lesser ones are worth 500. And it kind of trickles out from there. And you only get points for your last 12 months unless you've been injured or there's been a pandemic. But basically, it's pretty simple. My understanding is that in the 70s, um, it wasn't like that. And basically, there was a committee of blokes who decided how good you were and kind of made their maths fit. I mean, certainly that was one of my takeaways, George? George?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously, know, I know quite a few people uh, who featured in the film, and Richard Evans, um, I, I've only met Richard in the back end of his career. Um, very nice guy. Um, now works but,
2: for the Tennis Channel,
0: doesn't he? Yeah, but um, I think it was Mike Dixon was telling me that he was absolutely supremely high-level journalist back in the kind of 70s and this sort of era so it was interesting I, did, I didn't realize he'd been on this kind of rankings committee that existed um mm. i mean look there's a lot of lot of things to kind of say about the rankings thing it, It's quite the film does kind of leave a bit open in terms of obviously no one has access to all these documents uh, the atp while they haven't actually provided them the reasons they could be some legitimate reason but I mean it is a pretty compelling case where they looked at I know they were saying 1977 wasn't one of the years he would be world number 1 but that was their kind of starting point but I think he you know he'd won two grand slams that year compared to Borg and Connors he'd won twice as many tournaments as them I mean it's quite hard to paint a picture where someone doesn't become the top ranked player in in that sort of scenario um but yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting story um, and there's a lot to take away from it. But yeah, I mean, the rankings, obviously, when they started were nowhere near as well done now. And, you know, now you have like 18 tournament limits. That's the number they take points of. And it wasn't actually clear if that was the case back then. I think that's a relatively new thing they brought in, but it seems quite chaotic.
2: Well, yeah, I think chaotic is the word. I mean, for example, as pointed out in the film, you know, uh, they only updated the rankings kind of not every other week but it worked out over the course of a year to have only been done about 23 times and in a year when Connors was number one every time they updated it they just gave Connors the other weeks whereas in fact had they updated every week you know VS was winning other tournaments yeah you mentioned 77 I know they ended up going back to 75 and he should have been number one then but you know in 1978 or in 77 and 78 he won three Grand Slams in the space of like 17 months you know he he was incredibly dominant. and that's across three different surfaces as well you know um he was a serious player in that sense um but it was also what's kind of great about the film or what i really enjoyed about it is just the trip through tennis in the 1970s um i mean i mentioned eduardo pupo looking like donald sutherland i mean that for me the moment that stood out was the the 75 french open final vs against borg and they were great friends you know even i think borg does several talking heads for the film and he says you know i was from sweden he was from argentina but somehow it just kind of worked and you know they're walking through the kind of locker room at the french open and the guy comes over the tunnel and says um you know would borg and panetta come to court for the final please and guillem was like no, 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 my name's Vias, And he's like, <laughs> sorry, because well, that was the semi-final, Borg had beaten Panatta, <laughs> and, and then they walk out, like, each clutching, like, seven rackets. Like, they haven't even got racket bags. They're just, like, holding them in their arms, chatting away, wandering to the court. Uh, I just thought, in terms of a, a kind of, you know, a painting of the 1970s in tennis, it's kind of a remarkable um, tableau. Uh, and their relationship, I think, was one of the things
0: that really... I found fascinating the idea they would like spend so much time together at tournaments they would support it's quite a weird bit where Ball was like we bought 20 yogurts and sat <laughs> in like, yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a really weird
3: I felt <laughs> it's also like... it's, also, um, it's... It's also not really how I imagined Bjorn Borg's sort of prime (laughs) on the tennis tour was spent at night times. (laughs) Just imagine that. We've got these visions of him sort of being in Studio 54 and in reality it's just him and Via eating (laughs) yoghurt watching watching TV.
0: But but I guess, but the interesting thing, aside from the weird yoghurt eating, is the idea of being so close with one of your close rivals. I, I mean, I know people who are, are conned by this will say oh Feder and nadal are really good mates these days they have not been for a long time as and mm. they're definitely not as good friends as is kind of played up to the media i suspect um but the idea that your biggest rival guy you're facing in grand slam finals and stuff is sitting around with you in the hotel room in your space in tournaments i mean that, that that's so alien to the kind of the very top modern game i know you have people like Donna and Sakari, they talk about going for lunch and dinner at every tournament they're at. I'm talking about the very, very, very top guys. I mean, that's
3: weird, isn't it? I I think as well, McEnroe, Borg and Garalitis were big mates as well, weren't they? I think that that was sort of well noted, that they they were actual friends off the court as well, um, those three. Um, It was interesting, the flip side of that, though, I did crack out laughing a couple of times that... that, uh, Vilas's sort of dismissal twice of Jimmy Connors, um, which I thought was quite funny. The f- first when they were in juniors, and he specifically said that J- um, Connors used this particular racket because he was a weak player. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then the other time when when he needed him to be, um, we needed him to beat Borg for world number one, and he just rinsed Connors. He was yeah. like, yeah, Connors needed to win, but he barely won anything all year. and he had no chance, and <laughs> Borg was going to kill him. So I just went out to I went out I went up to Woodstock. <laughs> what a great story that is! I could have yeah. become world number one, but I didn't think it would happen. So I went up to Woodstock <laughs> in the seventies.
0: And, and even that sort of dynamic is quite different now as well. I mean, I, I guess you have curiosity a little bit, kind of, to go to people, but so, players are so afraid to say when they don't get on now, or that, yeah, you yeah. know that. You know, I, I just find the whole dynamic just—it's just a different world, isn't it? Like back then, it's—it's it's pretty cool, and having like the music that they were listening to going through, I, th- I thought that was quite a nice way to kind of accomplish it, it.
3: It was some of the things I found interesting was how the tournament schedule—much of it's still the same. They, there was a clip where they went through Vias's schedule, and you know, it was sort of like Monte Carlo, Rome, French Open nottingham queens uh washington toronto us open and i'm thinking this is this is pretty much the same schedule for,
2: Even kids, 45 know,
3: years on kids, kids ball
2: yeah that's clearly like the most historic 250 in existence um, yeah, it, yeah it
3: was and what, what was the crap with the masters back then because it seemed that did they just pick two players again to play the finals so that's
2: I, what it I, seemed like it seemed. I didn't really understand the masters. Yeah, it was. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, what was going on at that point? I don't know. But, but the way VS describes it is. He won it as a nobody, you know, like like <laughs> no, really heard of him. And I was like, is that really how that works? Like, yeah, this is but, the opposite.
3: But then the opposite of that is when he wins fourteen tournaments in a year. Two, he wins two slams, loses in the final of another, wins fourteen tournaments, and he's not in the Masters. <laughs>
2: <laughs> like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> What's going yeah. on there? It's unbelievable. I mean, I think the the moment or the character that stands out and George, I know you've got some stories about Ion Tiriac, <laughs> sorry, um, who's a Romanian coach who Via took up with. I think in seventy or well, seventy six, and he is the most remarkable looking tennis coach i have ever seen. He has a kind of Merv Hughes style, enormous moustache that starts at his nose and ends somewhere near his nipples. Um, I'm <laughs> vaguely overweight I don't think I saw him without a cigarette in his hand at any point including when he was having like 8 hour long hitting sessions with Vyas and they they have this kind of spiritual relationship that, that has lots of different forms but kind of at the beginning he's just a coach and they kind of both love each other and think that they, they are the best at their job in the world and then VS has this kind of just just collapse, mental collapse I think And and Tyriac sort of picks him up and says, uh, you know, I'm going to mold you like clay. You know, you don't think anything about your life anymore. I'm going to tell you everything that you do. And Vias, you know, who seems to me like quite a um, quite a lost soul in some ways. You know, he kind of really responds to that. You know, he's I think he grew up pretty rich. His parents seem very aristocratic. They told him he should never be a tennis player. And I think he was kind of searching for meaning, you know, without getting too spiritual about it. He he talks to lots of philosophers, he goes and looks at Hinduism, and I think Tyriac kind of becomes his guru, and when he he says he moulded me like clay, I think he absolutely means it. Uh, George, I think you had the pleasure of meeting the great man um, (laughs) in Paris for reasons that I don't fully understand.
0: (laughs) So uh, you've got to be a little bit careful to uh, unveil the secrets of these sort of meetings, but there's a... uh, essentially a, a meal that's arranged every year with some of the British press and Yon Um And I think it's a very long tradition. Right. And as one of the newer members, uh, I went in, it would have been 2019, and was invited out for dinner with Tiriak, um and the Madrid tournament director, whose name is Gerard, and I forget his surname. Slash, good, I looked at good, it good, earlier.
2: Good networking from I did, you, that, George. I did, well... I, I
0: see him around and stuff, and, but his name's quite hard to say. It's Sabanian. Right. So okay. that's why I was a bit reluctant to say it, but Sabanian, I think, is how you say it. Um, anyway. But, but yeah, I mean, Tyriak's an interesting bloke, as you can kind of see in that documentary. My, there, There's a few things I, I want to tell you about this meal that really stood out to me. Well, one of them was, and it, it kind of makes more sense in my mind now I've actually seen him in person, but he spoke... Very slowly about everything, and it was a big show. <laughs> That's all. The again. kind of person
2: who thinks that everything he says is extremely. <laughs> yeah. And at one point, uh,
0: Gerard was talking. I think he might have been talking to me. I can't remember. But he was talking to someone else around the table, and Tyrion looked at him and he goes. I'm not here to hear you talk. You're here to hear me talk. <laughs> <laughs> and it was <laughs> quite, I, I don't know, it's not often you're around someone who's quite so uh, out of Unashamedly like egotistical. <laughs> yeah. um, but it, it, he is very, very popular amongst the kind of Romanian players. Obviously, Simona Halep has spoken about him in the past. He worked with Nastasi as well as playing against him and doubles with him, I think, I'm right in saying. Yeah. Um, and a lot of... He's obviously a huge figure in Romania. I think he's been their, like, second richest man for a long time. Like, he's obviously not Paul poor guy. He's had a lot of success in business. He owns the Madrid Open. The tournament that I said was my, you know, the Madrid Open, I was talking about the trophy and how... Funny shape that is. That is apparently called the Eon Tyriac Trophy, which is it, I just realised. Is,
2: is it shaped? Is it based on it's, his moustache or something? It's,
0: it's that kind of stick one with the things pointing out is weird. Uh, yeah, anyway, yeah. The, the, other, the other interesting thing from this field, there were many interesting things, but the other interesting thing I'm going to share with you is that a special guest came with him to the dinner. Um, and he,
2: I gave you a little bit of a hint earlier. It's
0: an Olympics-themed guest. Any
2: ideas? I mean, I got lost in that one. I, I can't think of any famous uh, L- Romanian Olympians, um, but I might be barking entirely up the wrong tree. So, I, uh,
3: no, no, no idea.
0: Unless it was
2: Mustafa Hadji, who I don't think is even
0: <laughs> He's Moroccan, I believe, Mustafa Hadji um, from his days at Villa. Um, but uh, <laughs> Not him, then. So I'm going to be really honest here, and th- this was a bit before my time, but everyone else around there, who was a little bit older, was like, "Oh my word! I can't believe she's come for dinner with us." But it was Nadia Comaneci. She, apparently oh, wow, was the...
2: <laughs> she was the uh, first person I to have a perfect. I, would, I ten definitely at the wouldn't have recognised her. I definitely wouldn't have recognised her. Like, obviously, she, she's the perfect ten. Like, you know, it's, it's a, a seminal sporting moment. But yeah. So uh, Actually yeah. she, she
0: just was with
2: Syriac and just came to dinner with us. And so I, I, mean, I, I guess the Romanian sporting hierarchy is quite slim and they're probably all made. <laughs> yeah. uh, I kind of it's assume. A... And yeah, okay. That's remarkable. Um, I mean yeah, this is definitely the he's not the star of the film, but he's definitely the most memorable character. Right?
3: <laughs> yeah, um I also have a quick anecdote that I was told just in the last sort of couple of hours by a friend of mine who sort of uh told me that, uh, who's also a tennis coach, he told me that uh, while he was on tour uh, coaching, he would sell jeans out of a suitcase <laughs> um, at, at the tournaments. And then, and he put as well, and when they'd all gone, he would sell the suitcase as well. <laughs> um, but, uh, but also like the, the sort of, his his coaching seemed to be entirely based on telling, telling Villas that he was no longer allowed to write poetry yeah, um, and, um, and, and sort of making him play for eight hours. And, yeah, and that, that was pretty...
2: That poetry thing is important to note because vias seems basically to have been born for social media in a, before an era of social media because yeah. he was like making cassette tapes of his own thoughts and yeah. writing poetry and, and writing books almost at all opportunities.
3: Yeah, it, it it was it was bizarre. And then, of course, the, the the scene of the entire film is while he's playing. I think in the French Open final, it's definitely a Grand Slam final. It's and the, Australian, the Australian final. A, in 7% Australian 7%. Open final, and Tyriak is just there with no shirt on, smoking a cigarette,
2: <laughs> and, and, it, a it, and a yellow bucket hat,
3: it, and a yellow bucket hat. It's <clears> absolutely <throat> phenomenal i Like. <laughs> like um, and I'm gutted, the only thing, my first thought was I'm gutted that I didn't get that one for my tennis pitchers thread because it would have been <laughs> the best one. <laughs> but now it's kind of being used. So, um, But, yeah, a phenomenal man. I think he was also involved with in Becker later on. Um, I, I looked into it. He actually coached Vias until, 90, I think, 1988. Um, wow. So they had a long relationship. Um, but, obviously, he wasn't there at the, the Australian Open uh, yeah. when he won it. Um, which is quite strange. There's a, a really
0: good uh, Wikipedia description about his moustache that I was reading earlier. <laughs> I thought I could say. So he says, there's a guy called John McPhee wrote this and he said, of his drooping moustache suggests that this man has been to places most people do not imagine exist. He appears to be a Panatella ad a triple agent from Alexandria, a used car salesman from central Marrakesh. <laughs> Tyriac has the air of a man who is about to close a deal in a back room behind a back room. <laughs> <That's the laughs> fantastic
2: writer. <laughs> He's actually a pa- apparently He's a self-made millionaire. He may well have been all of those things and more.
3: Yeah. <laughs> uh, and gene salesman. <laughs> yeah. Gene salesman. Um, it's a billionaire.
2: It's a billionaire. Yeah, billionaire.
3: yeah. I'm self-made, man. apparently. Self-made. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to cast aspersions on what a self-made billionaire in Romania in the 70s might well, have might, well done. Very true. But, you know, you don't get rich on that because you're not knowing some quite interesting people. Um, I, I think also, you know, I, I kind of um, alluded to it a little earlier, but, you know, in the end, much as we love Tiriak and, and Pupo, Viat is the star of this documentary, and it, it closes with um, him and Pupo talking to camera. And it's actually a very moving scene, you know, classic kind of directorial cut, just, just straight, Non-moving camera for four minutes, and you know he just sobs. poopo's is just talking about the number one, and he just sobs with this like it's not a joy because he thinks he's been recognised. It's not a frustration. It, it just feels like a a, a huge outpouring of, of emotion that you know this was not like Vias in 1995 realised that he maybe should have been world number one. You know he submitted complaints, and Richard Evans says. VS never complained to the committee. I'm afraid Richard Evans, I think, got selective memory on that one. Because VS (laughs) lodged complaints in 75, in 77, in 82, um, in 2007, when these documents came to light, I think, in 2014. And I think it's important to discuss, you know, this is a man who gave a lot to tennis, right? You know, he won four Grand Slam titles. He he made tennis popular in Argentina. Uh, The talking heads in the film feature... You know, Rafa Nadal says that every Latin American athlete in any sport should be thanking VS for what he did. Roger Federer talks about meeting him as a child and how influential that was. This is a guy who's been huge for tennis, and he emails 12,000 words of documents to Chris Camode, as it is, the ATP chairman at the time, and basically gets an email back that day saying, yeah, well, we're not changing history.
3: I think it's outrageous. Yeah, it's also just breathtaking arrogance in that they don't have any. They don't seem to have any reason why he shouldn't be. They sort of. They've sort of put the evidence forward as to why he should, which seems pretty certain in that it's 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 numerical, and the ATP have just gone, yeah, we we're we're not going to change it. (laughs) And sort of, and and Richard Evans, like you say, has this sort of. I, I don't know what the term is, but it's again, it's just this sort of what well, his exact words was, well, he never complained to me. So, yeah. and I thought, right, well, I don't know what you're trying to say there. You know, the world doesn't revolve around that, but, mm-hmm. and he was clear. He's, it, it doesn't, the strange thing as well is that this doesn't even appear to have been that close. It seems that he, he was pretty clear as world number one for at least mm. one of those periods and, yeah. and, and probably both. Um, and we're, we're just going to uh, we're just going to ignore it. Um, and I think what, what it's evident to me as well what why that might have been because I, I can remember kind of the very back end of, of his career when he was around um, and sort of you know so I know I knew who he was I, I didn't realize how good he was until I have watched this film. In that if you have sort of McEnroe Borg Connors he's clearly the number four. I guess he's clearly the Andy Murray of that generation. Mm isn't he and, and you know what, what did he end up with did he end up with five slams or just three slams four. in the four. end four slams you know, four slams is, is a hell of a career also
2: um, four slams across three different surfaces you know yeah, the, the yeah. Australian Open the US Open and the French Open and you know he, he beat Borg in a, a French yeah. Open final like peak Borg peak yeah.
3: Borg as well you know and, and I think it also said at the end the most he, he, the, he holds the record for the most tournaments won in a year as well mm. He so, won fifty yeah,
2: matches in a row at one point.
3: Right, yeah, just a, f- a phenomenal player, and and I think it was sort of quite clear that you you know it sort of suited the ATP to have Connors as world number one around that period, um, and and maybe Borg, maybe just just the more marketable in the you know they both spoke English, I guess mm-hmm. so. And I think it's definitely... It's clear that something's been brushed under the carpet there. And I just expected that the the story would end with them just admitting that he has and just granting him the world number one. But they they seem to not have done. They're still sort of sticking with it.
0: Yeah, I mean, so... It seemed the case, in not that they... They're worried about setting this precedent. I, I thought it was quite flimsy sort of yeah. argument where they were saying, "Oh, well, we'd have people who are world number ten claiming to be world number nine. But I mean, that's different, yeah. isn't it? I mean, like there's, uh, no check, yeah. there's no check for being world number nine at the
2: end of the year. There's a check for <laughs> yeah. being world number one yeah. at the end of the yeah. year. Yeah, and the be, like, Seriously, I'm kind of being flippant, but seriously, like no, it's true. It's been done out of cash there. Yeah, and
0: like yeah. you know, there's precedent for it on the women's side with uh, Yvonne Gulagong being kind of yeah, later exactly. recognized. No one kicked up a fuss being like, "This is terrible." She's been recognized now and quest- brings the rankings into question. I mean, we could all accept that when rankings were started out around this period, it was a different time. You didn't have computers and stuff. There probably were going to be some errors. What doesn't yeah. make sense to me? I and mean, I do, you know, okay. It, the second response from Chris Commode may have seemed a bit flippant. The first one did take a few months. So they did, yeah. I reasonably assume, go through the data properly and give it enough credence. We don't know for certain um, that there's not something like a terrible mistake. But it is weird. They wouldn't say this is wrong. This is where you've gone yeah. wrong if that wasn't wrong. Do you know what I mean? So I it, it's, it's strange it's to me.
2: It's reasonable to say that, you know, Pupo and um, at uh, forgive me if I get this wrong, either a Slovenian or a Slovakian um, mathematician who was living in Australia at the time, worked together for years, compiling all the information and, yeah. and you know, digging out... I thought he th- was Romanian. I thought I thought the story... I might be wrong, but I thought... No, the story he's, was,
3: Slovakia, he's Slovakian.
0: But wasn't it... He yeah. asked a Slovakian and then he was given no, a Romanian name. No, the other way. Name. No, the other way around. No, it's the
3: other, other, way around, other way yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean, go. you know,
2: and, and that took years, you know, him trying to compile records of tournaments that basically were never written down in some places and things like that you know so it would be reasonable for the ATP to say oh you've done a lot of research we're going to have to verify that give us six months but it's not reasonable for me from my perspective and I think from all of our perspectives for them to say well we can't possibly find that out because someone already has found that out um and I don't think it would be you know it, it it clearly matters so much to VS and you know, I, from a kind of very um, commercial perspective and from a cynical perspective, South America is a big market. You could make a really big PR win saying to Guillermo VS, we think you were world number one, you were robbed. We're going to have a big ceremony in Buenos Aires or whatever, or Plata, or La Plata. Um, and, you know, Juan Martin Del Potro will present you with the world number one trophy or something. You know, you could really make something out of that.
3: Yeah. Also, I, I think was I, I think what from what I can make out from the from the film is that the rankings back then were an average, uh, an average of your tournament of your points um, accrued. And Federer sort of says at the end that it didn't um, it didn't reward playing a lot. So I yeah. guess there's more likelihood your average would go down if you played 25 tournaments mm. than if you played four or five. Um, but but I think what was most sort of telling as it was at the end when they spoke to a few of the players. And they're all kind of a bit, although they're, cl- they're favoring Vias, they're all a bit sort of hedging their bets. There's a lot of, well, if he did have a claim, then he deserves to be uh, rewarded yeah. for it. But then Borg, who benefited from it, is unequivocal in he sh- He was world number one. He was yeah. the best player. He should have been world number one. And, and, I, and, I- and it's, it's unequivocal.
2: And I don't know much about Bjorn Borg, but my impression of him, you know, given his early retirement and kind of general avoidance of the scene, is that it takes quite a lot for him to be pretty forthright about something. Yeah. You know, he doesn't throw around hyperbole particularly easily. So I think that's, as you say, maybe the the most telling thing. Um, George, you probably, I'm sure you made loads of notes. I've got three pages of notes from this (laughs) film as well, but I don't know if you had anything you wanted to add.
0: Um, I mean, uh, there were just a couple of nice little moments
2: that aren't particularly worth
0: dwelling on. I, I liked his speech about the grass being, you know, he said to like, the crowd, being like, I used to think the grass was for crowds. Now I suppose they can play tennis too after he'd like, won a major title on it. Yeah. Um, is that I on the, the grass ad-
2: in Australia?
0: Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I, I love the advice to Rafa as well that Rafa kind of said. And just the way, you know, Rafa again when you see Rafa like pay tribute to people quite often, like he'll say something nice about them and say, they've done something really well, but he won't necessarily give you that kind of nugget of like, this is something that really meant a lot to mm-hmm. And th- him kind of quoting back this advice that VS had given him as a young boy about him saying anyone can run to the side, but not everyone can keep going side to side, to side, to side for whatever. And it's your job to make them do that because they'll be uncomfortable. I mean, okay. It's, sounds relatively basic advice but it, Rafa kind of delivers it in such a way that it did seem to have such a kind of telling impact on his career and I thought that was a really nice moment and just something I'd not really considered before like someone like not like I'm yeah. sure you know these greats but you know you may think okay maybe Rafa watched Borg because you know as a great play, play player and I, I know VS has a great clay record and stuff but having that sort of impact is just quite interesting and he, even the idea at the end that that guy comes up to VS being like you'll I'd name my kid after you I mean it's interesting kind of just getting that general insight like someone who's clearly impacted so many people and seeing the emotional side of him as well I thought it was a really good documentary to be fair and it probably helped that I didn't know that much about him to start with like I just actually really enjoyed learning about this period and seeing his career so I'd I'd recommend it
2: I I thought one person conspicuous by his absence was Juan Martín del Potro I thought it was really interesting and I wonder if there's more to that and maybe that's something we'll talk about well, in the new year because... First part of the new year yeah, <laughs> tennis it, podcast investigation. It would, <laughs> it would seem obvious to get Del Potro talking about that. So maybe there's more there. Um, I just wanted to... I had one more note which is the from the 1977 US Open final between Connors um, and V.S. where Tyriak says that he, he basically... V.S. came onto court for the final dripping in sweat because Tyriac yeah. had hit with, it, hit with him for 90, <laughs> 90 minutes on the court as preparation for his first ever US Open final. Um, and Guillermo Villas promptly loses the first set in about 25 minutes. He said he won like
0: five points, didn't he? I, mean, yeah, <laughs> I think that was an barely exaggeration.
2: Won a, but... <laughs> barely won a game. Um, and, uh, and he comes back to win the final in four sets and bagels Connors in the fourth set. And, you know, this is... The most successful guy in U.S. Open history, who had already won it twice, he won it the year before, he won it the year after, and the like you know has a three-set match with his coach beforehand, and then beats him. Um, he he had such a rich career that you know there are so many stories like that, and I know there's bits we haven't discussed. So if you haven't seen it, um, find a way. It's on Netflix, um, and it's made me realize that his name is Guillermo. But people call him him Willie, people call him William, people call him everything, it seems. Um, But yeah, certainly one of the most interesting players. And it also made me kind of hark for players like that now. You know, I don't know how many of the players on tour write poetry or would go to Hawaii for two weeks because they're having a mental breakdown. Or, (laughs) you know, I just I kind of long for that in some ways. But um, maybe that's 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 a gone a gone era. You'd certainly not have the access if they were doing that. That's, that <laughs> yeah, you'd not that's probably that. the other point, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. We should leave it there for 2020, kind of on a, a almost a suitably tangential and nutty note. Um, and <laughs> we'll be back the first Monday of 2021. I don't want to overcommit to that, but I think it's the first <laughs> I was say, New Year's Eve. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's fortunately the fourth of January when I oh, that's we'll good be news. Back. Um, we'll be looking forward to hopefully an Australian season, a Roger Federer comeback. Um, wherever you're having Christmas, have a safe one and a new year, and we'll see you in 2021. Hopefully, it's a better one. Yeah.
1: Sports Social Podcast Network.